You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. Well, if you look at the beginning of uh, the reading we've read together this morning and this uh, situation with the disciples asking Jesus about this exorcist, there's a guy going around casting out demons, it's actually not that hard to identify uh, with, with their feelings about that situation. They see this guy, he's not one of the disciples, casting out demons, and they come to Jesus and say, should we tell him to stop? And I, I have some of those feelings sometimes, when um, sometimes you see guys on the telly, I'm going to pick on one person, but hopefully by the end you won't think I'm too mean. But there's a guy called Benny Hinn, have you seen him? He kind of looks like a travelling salesman, and um, you know he's got kind of a, a slick patter the way he talks. He wears shoes that apparently costs like $80,000. He's got a private jet and he flies here, there and everywhere. And, you know, once in one of his meetings, he claimed that there were nine persons of the Trinity. And, you know, so he's not the soundest of teachers, right? And he also thinks like your recordings of him on the telly and he'll wave his, his white blazer. He's got this white blazer that he often wears and he'll wave it and people will seem to fall over with the Holy Spirit and so on. And I look at that and I think, what? <laughs> this is kind of crazy stuff. And yet... People come to saving faith at his meetings. <laughs> and I'm kind of with the disciples. I'm like, Jesus, should we tell him to stop? <laughs> and, um, but God uses him, despite my severe reservations about his practice and his theology. Whatever my reservations are, God doesn't seem to share them, right? He, well, God works differently to how I'd expect. And I, I guess we, we begin by saying quite simply this, that God uses people I wouldn't use, And he uses things that I wouldn't use and he uses theologies that I wouldn't use uh, to minister his grace to people. And I think that really that's the point of um, this encounter between the disciples and this exorcist who we don't know much about. We just hear about briefly in the first couple of verses. And in fact, what I would argue really is that the the thread that ties our whole reading together from verses 38 right through to um, verse 50 is the, the theme of Catholicity. This has nothing to do with Roman Catholicism. It's to do with the universality of the church, of what it means to be part of a wider body of Christians. So that we are part of a body, that you know, we are not the one true church here in Turner's Hill Free Church and all the other churches are wrong. You know, we are part of a wider body. And it's how we interact with that and how we enjoy and appreciate that and uh, that this um, passage is talking about. Um, and on the... the art, how do we join in, if you like, that's the question, in becoming part of the beautiful and rich variety and harmony of the universal church? That, that's the theme, really. And the answer to that Jesus gives the disciples is, on the one hand, we should be humble and generous to those who say they are serving Christ, but who differ from us in appearance or practice or theology to some degree. And on the other hand, we should pursue holiness and the love of God in ourselves. So verses 38 to 40 um, represent those who are outside of our own church community, if you like. This is a mark writing for the early Christians. You think, of, try and put yourself in a situation where you're a member of a church, say in Rome, reading Mark's letter for the first time, and think about the kind of disorder and the kind of, it was kind of the wild west of, of, of Christian mission. There have been people all around the place who, may have been using the name of Jesus, praying in the name of Jesus, ministering in the name of Jesus, but they wouldn't necessarily have come together into the communities recognised by the apostles. And we know that happens right through the early years of Christianity. So there's a sense in how do we tell who are the good guys, who are the bad guys? Mark is writing to address that. And he's saying, whoever's not against us is is for us. Then in verse 41, uh, Jesus begins talking about whoever gives you a cup of water. And for a moment, it seems like he's changing direction, he's changing tack in terms of what he's talking about. Um, he, like he's beginning a new thought. But actually, he's continue, continuing what went before. What he's saying is there is a great reward in aiding those who serve Christ. So there's a lot at stake in being generous to those who are actually on our side. So before we write someone off as saying, oh, we don't want to work with them, we don't want to be associated with them, we should think, actually, do you know what? There is a great reward in helping those who are actually serving Christ. So that should cause us to pause and think, here, maybe there's an opportunity here to work with a brother who I haven't recognised yet. To work with someone who wants to serve Christ, but I haven't recognised. 
You know, a great example of that in Scripture is um, uh, the way the church in Ephesus treated a teacher called Apollos, um, who wasn't part of the apostolic band. He was a guy who'd heard the teaching of John. Actually, I'll just, let, um, I'll just read it to you from Acts 18. This is uh, Luke's account of how they treated this chap called Apollos. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila, those were two leading members of the church in Ephesus, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos went to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. So here's a guy who's not part of the official church at the time, who's basically on the side of the church. He's got the message right, but he's wrong in his theology in some, he's inadequate in his theology in some regards. And what the church in Ephesus did, instead of saying, like, we're going to have nothing to do with him, they teach him. They say, you're on our side. And they take him in and they instruct him more fully. And he becomes a great teacher, a great advocate for Christ. He becomes a real asset to the church. And that's what this cup of water verse is all about. He's saying there's, when there's an opportunity to help someone who is on your side, we should take that because uh, the reward of that is, is great. Do you see that? Maybe I'm diving in. Are we getting too complicated too quickly? I hope not. But uh, so Jesus is saying the stakes are high in terms of the people that we're able to encourage in their ministry. And then verse 42 gives the kind of flip side to that. Verse 42, actually, it's unhelpfully placed in the next section in the NIV. In most translations, we get these little subsections, which isn't in the original. It's a, it's a continuation, I think, of the same thought. Um, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble... It would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. And really what it's a warning is about judging those who we don't identify with um, too harshly. So I'm going to use shorthand throughout this sermon. I'm going to say other churches, okay? But what I mean by other churches is Christians who have a different theology or a different way of doing things when they meet together on a Sunday, or maybe a different way of doing discipleship or a different denomination. It's kind of shorthand for that. And to save me repeating myself, saying all those four things each time, I'm just going to say other churches. Is that okay? (laughs) All right, so so this warning is about judging other churches too harshly. And inadvertently frustrating what God is doing, quenching the spirit. So you think about how Ephesus could have treated Apollos. They could have said, this guy knows nothing about the Holy Spirit. He's not been baptised in the Holy Spirit. You know, we should tell him to shut up and if they'd done that they would have lost this guy who was able to vigorously refute the charges coming against the christians who was able to wonderfully speak on behalf of god and they'd have quenched the spirit and um they'd have caused in one sense or another one of these little ones to stumble um likewise paul in corinth for example you know this uh in corinth there's these uh very enthusiastic uh, super spiritual people, charismatics, who are keen to use the gifts of the Spirit in the church. And Paul doesn't say to them, right, you guys, just stop what you're doing. Just enough of this Holy Spirit business. He gives them instruction on how to, how to order their services, how to love one another, how to harness that gift that God has given them and use it in the service of the church. So it's not this, he's not quenching the Spirit. He's not against those who are of, of different um, churches, different parties. He's... Um, he encourages them. He, he corrects them gently. So just, we're just explaining the passage as a whole at the moment. We're going to get to some specific lessons in a minute. But first of all, then, we're talking about how do we create this catholicity, this us being part of the body of Christ. Well, first, on the one hand, we create it by having this humble and generous attitude to those who claim the name of Jesus. That's, that's the first thing. That's what Jesus is talking about the first of. And then there's a second part of the puzzle Um, It's not just our attitude towards others, but it's our attitude towards ourselves. In the second, the largest part of the verse we've read today, Jesus begins to talk about holiness. And the focus goes from others to ourselves. Your hand, your arm, 
Your eye, not theirs, yours. So he's, and he begins to talk about holiness. He uses this um, language of salt and fire, which represent holiness. Salt and fire were representative of the offerings that were offered in the temple. Every sacrifice had to be salted before it was burnt. And that's literally just covered with salt. Salted before it was burnt. Um, and it's a reference to, um, because it represented holiness. Um, in the Old Testament, there's a, re- there's a reference here as well. When um, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, God sent fire to destroy them. And what was left behind was a salt waste. So, it's a represent- so what Jesus is talking about is holiness here. So he's saying, in your attitude to others, be humble and generous to those who claim the name of Jesus. In yourselves, you have to pursue holiness. If you want this unity with the body of Christ, be generous and humble to others. In yourselves, pursue holiness. Now, sanctify yourselves. Flee sin. Um, get away from, um, uh, from sin as, far, as fast as you can. Or, if you like, God will do it for you. That's what these verses are about. So we're not to obsess over the holiness of others the correctness of others, but be concerned with our own purity, individually or maybe even in the the group to which we belong. And this twin attitude of generous humility to others and the pursuit of holiness in ourselves is what produces the unity or the catholicity of the church. And so Jesus finishes with this wonderful verse, hence have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. You see that, how it ties it all together? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. One another being the wider church. So, do you, see, do you see all that? I know we've covered a lot quite quickly. We haven't done any examples yet. Well, not many. But you see, there's an explanation of the passage. As best as I can see it, I think that's what ties it all together. And t- today, I really want to focus on that first part about um, uh, being humble to others and generous to others. And I want to focus on four reasons why we should be generous to other churches. I'm using shorthand there, remember. <laughs> Why we should be generous to other churches. Um, is that okay? We're going to do four things. Okay. Firstly then. First reason we should be generous to other churches. God's vision of church is better than yours. That's the first reason. Um, I think this is just such a great initial lesson for the disciples. Because their understanding of Jesus' mission and who the God's chosen people were was so limited, wasn't it? I mean, at this, at this stage... You know, Peter, as we already talked about last few weeks, Peter doesn't even understand that God has come to rescue the Gentiles yet. That's, like, that's kind of how myopic he is in terms of getting God's vision for the church. Later on, not long after this, uh, they're going to meet a guy called Paul, who, not one of the 12 disciples, not among the apostolic band at all, completely randomly on his own, Jesus reveals himself uh, to Paul on the road to Damascus converting him and sending him, commissioning him to go on mission to the Gentiles. Paul disappears for three years on his own, doing his own thing. Comes back, checks in with Peter for 15 days, he tells us. Spends a couple of weeks with him. And then disappears for another 14 years before finally God tells him to come back to Jerusalem and talk to the apostles and say, am I on the right track, guys? <laughs> so if, if, if they had a problem with this exorcist, who, they, you know, who was just doing this one-off kind of casting out a demon... How would they have felt about the Apostle Paul, who had basically taken upon himself the whole mission to the Gentiles, completely independently from them? You see how important this lesson was for them? It's, there's a lot at stake, isn't there? And if they hadn't learned this lesson then, I think um, they would have treated Paul a little differently, I think. And I think, so God's vision is bigger than ours. I think we instinctively, because, we, because of our perspective, because of our sin, because of our nature, somehow we have an instinctively small and narrow understanding of what the church of Christ should be like. I know some of you have been in churches where they would definitely define themselves as being the church that gets everything right. I think some of you have. No, you know, having talked to you one-to-one in the past. And, and there's this kind of absurdity about it, isn't it? When a ch- church is, in my experience, where there's a sense of kind of we have got everything right and all the other churches are wrong, are often kind of comically inadequate. Aren't they? Kind of, there's, a, there's a narrowness in the aesthetic, the songs that are sung, the whitewashed walls, the, the, the personalities that it produces. There's a narrowness. But there's a security because it's so easy to define. You know, and 
But can you, it, it is absurd to imagine that there's this one way of doing church. Can you imagine if we went out to the world and said, like, turn us to free church. We, have, we are the pinnacle of what it means to be a worshipping Christian community. We have a rose window. It doesn't have much coloured glass in, but it's all right. You know, we have we have perfect building with our blue chairs and our red cross. You know, <laughs> and this is the way that everyone should do church. It's, it's kind of silly, isn't it? God's vision of the church, the Bible tells us, is of a great city. A great city. And even that in itself should make us begin to think big. And it should make us think of variety and complexity and glory and beautiful things. A city that's filled with people of every tribe and tongue and nation who, yes, praise God with one voice, but are not lost in their diversity. Uh, it's a city into which is brought all the treasures of the earth, the Bible tells us at the end of Revelation. All the treasures of the earth. So we should expect then within the city to be a variety of things, a variety in Christian terms of forms of worship, a variety of glory in, in the way that it colours and changes every aspect of human life. That's God's vision of the church. And often we... You know, our vis- my vision is like a big warehouse where like goods come in and like disciples come out. You know, <laughs> but God's vision is better than mine. Uh, the Bible gives us another picture of the, of the church, the body, the body made up of many parts, different gifts, different strengths, different functions, uh, within which we find different ways of being Christian, different ways of seeking God and of serving Him. We have mystical traditions and artistic traditions intellectual and philosophical traditions and um, service traditions of how to serve the poor and the needy and charismatic traditions and evangelistic traditions and all this great richness. And it would be silly for us to think if God gifts us in one way because we are like this that everyone else has to be the same and Paul addresses that in his letters to the Corinthians. He says, Can, you know, if the whole body were an eye where would the sense of hearing be? So there's this variety in the church. And so this first point then, God's vision of the church is better than yours. It's certainly better than mine. <laughs> and just by virtue of the fact of God's knowledge and his genius and you know, his goodness, his omnipotence and omniscience, it's going to be better than your vision and my vision. So why should we be generous to other churches and humble before them? Because God's vision is better than yours. And I think, just to apply that for a moment, I think that gives us a great comfort as Christians. I think it gives us a great comfort. Because we are part of this family that is 2,000 years old, where lessons have been learned, and roads have been trodden, you know? Things have been tried out. Mistakes have been made, and people have resolved never to make them again. (laughs) Things have been written down so that we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't make those mistakes. There's great wisdom and beauty in the family that we're part of. And we'd be stupid to ignore it. And I think it speaks to uh, many churches, and perhaps it speaks to us as a church. There is a mood in our society of kind of novelty and of kind of discovering new things and always being on the lookout for the next big thing. I mean that generally. I don't, but I think that comes into the church to some extent. Where instead of learning the lessons of the past, instead of drawing on things that have happened in the past, instead of recognising that we're part of this great, beautiful city, we want to rediscover everything for ourselves. And that makes it incredibly hard work. It means that the church is weak when it should be strong. There there are churches struggling with straightforward heresy, for example. Those lessons have been learned like 1,700 years ago, and there are churches who are like, oh, maybe, you know, has anyone ever really thought about this before? The church is weak when it should be strong. Um, Christ is facing the church in terms of the goodness of the body, the goodness of creation. These are lessons that are all learned, well documented, theology that's been done, that we can draw from to answer those questions. I mean, okay, theology, that's my thing, right? But, but what about your own challenges? You know, in terms of discipleship, there are ways of following. You don't have to figure it all out for yourself. There are ways of following Jesus. You're struggling to pray? You know, there are 2,000 years of people who have struggled to pray and have tried to figure out ahead of you and can advise you <laughs> through their writings and their example of how to do that. 
The the rest of the Hebrew says there is a great uh, crowd of witnesses cheering us on. And that's part, that's, that's our heritage. You're facing some temptation that you think is unbearable. The people have faced that temptation before you and they've won. I mean, let that cheer you up. The fact that they've won in itself, but also look at how they won. You know, how did they overcome this, this battle in their life? How did they win that battle? How did they get the devil to flee? It's great, isn't it, that we're part of that. We don't have to discover that for ourselves. We don't have to wait for some guru in, to, to write a new book for us to figure that out. We are part of that great, great family. Same, how to do discipleship, how to do worship, how to do mission, how to do church, how to face persecution. We have all these lessons to draw from. So, first reason. I said there are four. There are only three, I think. Three reasons why we should uh, be generous to other churches. That's the first. Okay, secondly then. Second reason we should be gracious to other churches, um, generous and humble before them, is that God is more gracious than you and me. God uses people and things that we wouldn't because he is more gracious than us. We should be generous and humble to other churches because that's how God deals with us. You know, it's not just that God loves variety. It's not just that this is a great city of, you know, rich with different things. It's God bears with our weaknesses. He knows that we're not the finished article yet. And he uses us anyway. And we should have that attitude as we look at other churches, knowing that people don't have to be perfect in order to be used by God. Again, we, I think we have this instinct comes somewhere to us naturally that God only uses, that it should be that God only uses people who are fully on board theologically. You know, they've got all their ducks in a row. Uh, all their eyes crossed and... No, uh, eyes crossed. Eyes dotted and T's crossed. He uses, but the point is he uses people who've got their eyes crossed and their T's dotted. That's the point. <laughs> we, we think that God would only use people whose lives are perfect or whose way of doing church is perfect. Uh, by which we often mean like us, of course. Uh, and, you know, the disciples had that instinct, I think. They, they had this feeling of, because God had chosen them, because you know, Jesus had chosen them, set them apart, that somehow their understanding would have been superior, that there was a kind of exclusivity. They, they, you know, they bought the franchise. They got exclusive rights for the reading of Judea to be the ministers of the gospel or something. You know, that, that it was just their job. And Jesus is saying, no, that's, that's not why you're set apart. You are set apart for a reason, but that doesn't mean that no one else can do this work. But that's good news too. Because we'd all be stuffed, wouldn't we, if God waited for us to have a perfect theology or perfect practice before he used us, or to, for us to be perfect before he used us. The church wouldn't have got off the ground at all, would it, if Jesus hadn't agreed to use Peter, who was manifestly not perfect in his theology or practice or personality. It wouldn't have, anyway, if it got past Peter, it wouldn't have got much past Corinth, would it? With all its problems, or Galatia. Um, it's good news. God uses imperfect things. You know, like um, um, Graham's just got back from uh, Romania where they've been taking an Alpha course out there. You know, Alpha is a great example of that. I don't know if anyone of you have been on an Alpha course. It is such a random selection of, uh, 12 weeks, right? And it's such a random selection of topics. Like, if you were going to design a course of, like, you know, how to introduce someone to the Christian faith, like, you know, from scratch, if it, if it was down to me, I would not do it with these 12 topics. Like, at all. I just wouldn't. Like, it's, doesn't, it's not historically how the church has done it. And I'm not being mean here, right? I'm just saying God uses things that aren't perfect. Like, it's, uh, is, you know, it's, it's not historically how the church has done it. It's not, like, systematically presented. It's kind of all over the place. And yet, people get saved, don't they? People come to faith in Christ. Uh, God uses it. I mean, it's wonderful. And, you know, God uses all our imperfect methods. How many conversions have there been under wonky or inadequate presentations of the gospel? I would suggest there have been millions. Millions of bad presentations of the gospel. Yeah, right. Exactly. exactly. Spurgeon. Uh, The minister, when Spurgeon went into this church, you know, looking for this, looking for salvation, basically, and the minister couldn't get there because it had been 
uh, I think it was a snowstorm at some country church, and they just they got this elderly deacon up who maybe used to preach in the bars within anymore. Whatever, he wasn't very experienced, and he was lost to words, and he's a kind of embarrassing, kind of stumbling over his words. And in the end, he's just lost to something today uh, to say. He just sees this young Spurgeon, age 16, I think he was, sitting in near the front row, and he just blurted out, you young man, you look miserable. <laughs> you need Jesus. That's all he managed to preach, and, and Spurgeon was saved. The greatest preacher of the 19th century. I mean, amazing, isn't it? So um, God uses all our, all our inadequacies. Um, you know, I think in my own life, like, you know, just discipleship and growing up in the faith, you know, so my experience of church, my experience in being discipled is so random, really. You know, and God, God used that. I'm so grateful for the way he used that and, and bore with the weaknesses of me and, and those who did their best um, to disciple me. That is good news. That is good news. It's good news for you because it means God uses us as a church to minister his grace, even when we haven't got everything right. It means that he, for me, it means he uses my sermons, <laughs> even when they're not perfect, which is all the time. It means that God can minister the gospel through you. No matter how uh, inadequate you feel your understanding or your ability to explain Jesus or your faith to someone, God is able to speak through you, to minister his grace through you, to bless other people through you. I think that's an important word for us this morning. I think some of you have come this morning feeling like, oh, I'm just so rubbish at that. You know, or there's something going on in my life that disqualifies me somehow. Some imperfection, some weakness, something that is yet to be made whole. God can use you. Or maybe it is that you found it easy in the past and... Now you find it hard. God can use you. Whatever, whatever that feeling is that somehow disqualifies you, God is okay with it. God is okay. He's able to use you despite uh, your inadequacy because God is more gracious than you would be with yourself. So God's vision of the church is better than yours. God is more gracious than you. Thirdly, um, the third reason we should be humble and generous to other churches is what I've called this morning, very catchily, God's superabundant goodness. It's God's superabundant goodness. And I think this is just such an important picture for us to get our heads around. Uh, not, just the, not just for this idea about how we are part of the, the universal church, how we become part of that, but I think it's really important for our understanding of God too, in lots of different ways. So what do I mean by God's superabundant goodness? Well, compare him to us. Let's take a, an act example. Um, let's say someone decides to commit a serious sin. Let's take a, a guy who decides to leave his family, his, his wife and his, and his children. You know, our instinct in that situation, if, that, if I was God, what would I do? I would zap him, wouldn't I? I'd be like, Pow! and I'd take away all goodness from his life. And I would make sure you know, that his whole life became a, a wreck and a ruin both to punish him and also somehow to you know, bring him to repentance or something like that. That's, that's what I would do, because, because I'm a sinner and I'm mean. <laughs> but my instinct is, is that as well, that, that somehow is appropriate and right. Um, we want to cut out goodness, we want, we want to take it all away. The way to show him he's bad is, is to, to bring his world crashing around, down around him. But God doesn't do that, does he? We know, I mean, I know enough people who've literally called down lightning from heaven upon themselves and not been struck down. <laughs> I know at least three people who've done that, I think, in my life. Uh, to know that God doesn't work like that. God doesn't, shield, he, God doesn't shield people from the consequences of their sin. He doesn't bless despite sin, if you see what I mean. He doesn't, he doesn't bless through sin. But God may and often does bring goodness into the life of those who... Um, are doing things wrong. He just does, doesn't he? I mean, I don't think I'm... I, I may be saying it in a new way for you, but I think it's fairly obvious as we look around the world at us that good things happen to bad people. That actually we could say in some sense that God blesses bad people. He, he, pour, he has this super abundant goodness that leaks through, if you like, wherever it can. It, it seems kind of scandalous to us that God does that. But this is his very nature. And so this person who's done these things, you know, to our, it galls us, he finds companionship, he, 
we experiences joy in some ways. You know, that's the superabundant goodness of God. But here's what the Bible has to say about that. He says, the Lord, um, the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. He's good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. He makes the sun to rise on the evil and, the, and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In, in Lystra, in evangelizing Lystra, the Apostle Paul tells this group of pagans who've never heard the name Jesus or don't know anything about the, the God of the Old Testament. He tells them that God has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. That's the superabundant goodness of God. We, we, can, we see it in nature. We take a picture of the natural world. We just see, if you spend any time in the natural world at all, you see how life just bursts through. Plant life especially just bursts through wherever it can. You know, if you see the seasons change, you see how, how plants are just waiting to get their chance. They're a little opening, a little flash of light, and suddenly, you know, they're there growing. We see life straining and pushing to emerge wherever it can. So you get a, a, a tarmac road that's, you know, has hardly any cars driving down it. And what do you see in the middle? Grass begins to grow. And left long enough, I'm guessing it would take over completely. And, and then trees and all sorts of things. You take our car, our car park there. Moss will grow uh, on the tarmac. Take my house. It once had a tree growing out of its chimney. Because <laughs> it was left long enough. Before my time, I might have. <laughs> this, this natural push in, in, in life all around us is an image of the superabundant goodness of God. He pours out his goodness on all, wherever he can. Dark, darkness cannot keep light out. We just want, we want dark here and light here and like in two separate rooms. But that's not the way darkness and light work, is it? Light pushes in to darkness wherever it can, can get it. So, God doesn't just have a better vision of church. He doesn't just bear with our imperfection. He actually uses every opportunity he can to minister his grace and love to the world. It's not just that God doesn't need our theology to be perfect or our church practice to be perfect. God wants us to have good theology. He wants us to have the right way of worshipping him and the right way of discipling people and all those things. He wants those things to be right. But even when they're right, his super abundant goodness just, just blesses outside of those things. It pushes beyond those things. It's, you know, that's how good he is. So he used the donkey to speak to Balaam. He used Balaam, who was basically a pagan wizard, for want of a better word, to speak to Israel. He uses Caiaphas, this corrupt high priest, to prophesy about Jesus. It is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. God uses ministers and churches and theologies that aren't just different or imperfect, but may even actually be you know, actually wrong. Uh, to minister his grace to people. So that's an important truth. A little side note, I think, which is important. This understanding of God's super abundant goodness is really, really important for understanding the world around us. Uh, I'm gonna t- I feel like I use the example of gay marriage almost every week, and I'm sorry if you feel like I'm banging a drum, but it is an apt analogy. There are those in the church who, perhaps with good conscience or otherwise, I don't know, believe that Churches should bless same-sex marriages. And their logic goes something like this. We see that in same-sex marriages, there is goodness. There's companionship and faithfulness. It's not scandalous to say these things, is it? I, but they see those things. That people, there is some goodness there. And unless you understand God's superabundant goodness, you won't be able to discern that that doesn't mean that churches should bless in God's name those things. Just because God's goodness is found somewhere, it doesn't mean that he approves of that thing. Does that make sense? That's really, really important for us to understand. And without that understanding, we can't actually have true discernment, either about morality, because we'll think, oh, you know, God is blessing this person who's done a, a terrible sin. He's not. He's just his superabundant goodness. Um, and also we won't be able to discern in terms of theology either. Uh, so that leads us to an application, really, for that, with that last point. Um, just because God uses a person, a church, a ministry, 
It doesn't mean that it's all good. <laughs> it doesn't mean that God approves of it. Um, we still have to exercise discernment. Generously and humbly, because of the opportunity we have, perhaps, to help someone else honour God and serve the body of the church. Because of the risk of causing someone to stumble, we have to be very careful in our discernment. We still have to protect people from error and from dangerous teaching. Um, so all those things apply. I'll, I'll share a personal example. A, a few years ago, I had to go to a church that was in a crisis, and they'd asked for the help of um, uh, the Connection, who oversee our churches, and they'd asked for a couple of ministers to go and, and speak to this church. And the, the, the minister had been suspended, and the reason was he was teaching a theology. I won't, I won't tell you which theology he's teaching, because it's probably not very helpful for you. <laughs> And I'm trying to practice what I'm preaching, quite literally. Um, this, the, the minister there was, was teaching a theology that basically led... Um, one, of, one of the aspects was he would visit people in hospital and he would pray for them to get well. And if they didn't get well, he would tell them that they didn't have enough faith. And this caused a big problem in the church and there some complaints and he was suspended. And um, when I and another minister went down and we had a meeting with the church... Um, it became apparent that the problems were greater than that, actually. That actually there was... Uh, it, it wasn't just that this theology was imperfect or not yet you know, fully formed or whatever. But there's actually a kind of um, a divisiveness about it. There was a, a claim that um, this teaching was better than all the other teaching in, in other churches and so on. And um, it, it wrecked the church. I mean, it split the church. It caused great, great harm. So, and when, when we were in this meeting, the thing that still sticks with me is uh, there was this group who were very, very pro, the, the minister who has been suspended and this theology. And as we began to talk to them and say to them, look, this is what churches have believed, for, you know, this is what is orthodox and this is what's good. And uh, me and this other guy, we were trying to be gentle and so on. The reply came back was, uh, was well, this guy has uh, millions of pounds and thousands of students at his Bible college, and he's got his own TV channel thing. And who are you guys? You're two pastors of, you know, churches of 60 or so. You know, what, what do you know? <laughs> and their, 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 their idea was that God had blessed this, they thought God had blessed this guy materially and success, you know, in all these ways, and therefore somehow his whole message was approved of God. And that just doesn't work. They're mistaking God's superabundant goodness for his approval of a ministry. Does that make sense? So actually, that's, this superabundant goodness enables us to discern. It enables us, in us, us to discern morality and also, more to the point for today, a theology. So we've got all these three points together. Why should we be gracious and uh, generous and humble before other churches? God's vision is bigger than yours. God is more gracious than you. God is superabundantly good. And uh, just, just a few applications of that, I think, that are helpful for us. First, we have to recognise that God does work in extraordinary ways. So it is right that, you know, that, like I said before, there's a way to worship. It's right that we should find out what is the best way to worship God together. What is the way to do discipleship? What is the best way to pray? What is, what is good theology? You know, those things are right for us to pursue. That's, that's really, really good. Um, but even when we got those things, even if we could have the perfect church and the perfect theology and all those things, God would still work in extraordinary ways. And, um, so the, and the Bible, I think, is really clear on this. So the Bible says very clearly, you must believe and be baptised. And yet the thief on the cross believed and wasn't baptised and was guaranteed a place in heaven. <laughs> the Bible clearly says, you be baptised and you'll receive the gift of the Spirit. But then almost immediately, Cornelius and his whole household are baptised in the Holy Spirit before they're, bapt- um, before they're baptised in water. <laughs> And it's like the Bible saying, yes, this is the way to do it, but don't think that, that God somehow limits God to using these ordinary means. But that doesn't mean, conversely, that we should despise the ordinary. That we should somehow just look for those extraordinary things. You understand? Just because apple trees grow in the forest, it doesn't mean you shouldn't plant an orchard. <laughs> And, and, and that's the picture of how God works. He wants us to gather together these good things. He wants us to understand his will.
if we have a faith that depends on God working in unusual and unexpected ways, that's not the picture of the city of God. So, you know, I remember hearing a, a guy once say, you know, point me to where there's revival and I'll go there. That's the most important place to be. I'll travel anywhere in the world to be where revival is because that's the most important thing. That's, do you see, it's putting the cart before the horse. Give me the church. <laughs> I want the church of Jesus Christ. I want the city of God. I want the richness of where those things are gathered together and processed and put in their right place and we can understand them and worship God through them. And yes, give me the revivals too on top. <laughs> but don't let me mistake one for the other. It, a love of novelty, a lack of, of humility, a lack of love for the church, it causes shipwrecked faith. It causes moral failure. Churches who don't know how to navigate moral problems end up in moral failure because they've not learned from the past. It resurrects heresy. It allows mistakes to be repeated again and again. You know, God loves his church and he's building it up and, and it will be beautiful and whole one day. We should love it too and we should be involved in that building not in just looking roundabout. Very easy to become bored with church, to despise the normality of it. Yet God chooses these ordinary things more often than the extraordinary. Another application. I think we should, when it comes to correcting others, we should be more interested in shining a light than shouting at the darkness. Um, I observe a tendency, and I recognise this in myself, particularly in the past, I think of my first year in ministry here. Um, there's a tendency that, that can happen in us as Christians sometimes to obsess with what's wrong with everyone else's theology. I don't know if any of you identify with that. Maybe this second point is just for me, I don't know. <laughs> but we can obsess with what's wrong with everyone else's theology. You know, there's a, there's a website I go to. It's very, very good in lots of ways. But, you know, often there'll be, a, there'll be an article that'll be something like 17 signs of a false teacher. I'll be like, one, two, three. You know, I'll be like... <laughs> but I think, I think God wants us to be like 17 signs of, you know, of a good church, 17 signs of a, of a good teacher. You know, that's the things he wants us to focus on. There was a conference in the US, and I have, I'm, I have to pick on someone here, uh, called Strange Fire a couple of years ago, where um, a, a famous... Very, very famous, very, very popular American minister um, who doesn't believe in the gifts of the Spirit really, really went for um, to town on accusing charismatics of not really being um, orthodox Christians. To the point where, actually, I think he even slandered some, some friends of his, of his own in doing that. Uh, and I found the whole... As I, wa- I watched and re- read what was written and so on... It, there was this ugliness about pointing out what was wrong with everyone else that really distorted the truth. Um, it really distorted the truth. And you know, the funny thing was this, this conference is called Strange Fire because what they're saying is like, when people speak in tongues or they give a prophecy or you know, talk about the gift of the Spirit, that you're, this isn't right. This is offering strange fire before God. Because in the Old Testament, you know, a couple of guys who weren't authorised to go in the temple and they, off, they offered in the King James Version strange fire before the Lord. And what happened to them? Well, the earth opened up and uh, God's, you know, fire came down from heaven and they were swallowed up and destroyed because of this strange fire that they offered. And I, I remember thinking at the time, the irony of this conference, because what was happening was this guy was saying, what's happening in charismatic churches is as bad as what happened in the Old Testament. I remember thinking, well, if it's as bad, then surely God would just open up the earth and swallow us all, wouldn't he? <laughs> you see the, the irony of, of, of calling it that? It seems that actually... God isn't quite as bothered as this chap was. <laughs> Maybe he had a slightly different vision. You know, it's this funny thing. And I think we have a duty not so much to focus, to, to, not to turn a blind eye to things that are wrong, not to say there is no such thing as heresy, not at all, but to really model, to say, look, if there's a good way to do things, we'll model that, we'll make sure it works, we'll show it to people, we'll shine a light instead of shout at the darkness. I think that's our, our duty as Christians. Augustine identifies this tendency. St. Augustine says, you know, some try to separate the wheat from the chaff before the proper time. (laughs) Blinded by this error, they are themselves separated from the body of Christ. So we should shine a light, not shout in the darkness. Um, A third application I think is helpful for us today. (laughs) You know, as much as we're called to be generous to other churches, 
There's one thing that we do have to be really careful about calling out, um, to be careful of and to call out where we find it, which is a spirit of schism, a spirit of divisiveness, basically. If someone is teaching something that basically says, we've got it right and everyone else has got it wrong, it's very hard to be generous <laughs> towards them and to say, you know, so if Apollos, you know, if, if take that example of Ephesus, if they'd gone to Apollos and said, hey, Apollos, you haven't heard about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, let us tell you a few things. And he, he said, shut up, I know more than all of you. <laughs> you know, it wouldn't have been right for them to then invite him to preach at their church the next Sunday. Do you know what I mean? Because he would have been saying he knows more. And, you know, that I, I mentioned um, this church that I visited that was facing this problem. You know, that was really the problem that we faced and ended up in the church being split was there was a group in the church that insisted that this theology basically, this theology was basically saying the church has been deceived for about 1950 years and now this one teacher in America, has been, it's been revealed to him you know, what, what they've been deceived about and thus you have to get on board with this one guy and if you don't then you're not a proper Christian well that is the spirit of schism of divisiveness and unfortunately, when that happens, if you can't get people to see that, sometimes it's more subtle than that. Sometimes it's the implications of a teaching. Someone will say something, you're like, well, if you follow that to the conclusion, that means Christians have been wrong for <laughs> 2,000 years. And, and you can point that out. But, it, but if, if once you pointed that out, the person insists, then actually we do have to say, it, we don't have to have that generous kind of, like, we do have to say, that we, you know, actually, we can't identify ourselves with you. So Paul says to Titus, warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time and after that have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warned. You know, it's a very, very common problem, I think. We're surrounded by a kind of marketing culture and often and a kind of self-promotion culture and there are people who are looking for theologies and ministries that have a kind of unique selling point. A thing that marks them out from everybody else. And uh, it's just a part of our culture, I think. And the problem with that is that it has this tendency towards divisiveness. Because to be unique in the Church of Christ, you have to usually think of something that no one else has thought before. And if you think of something that no one has thought before, then you're probably a heretic by definition, unfortunately. So, you know, this is the if they are not against us part of what Jesus says. Augustine says we should condemn and forbid division and separation any sentiment adverse to peace and truth. We cannot be united with those who create schism. It is right to condemn those who separate. So some good rules for, I hope, for how we have Catholicity. Let me just finish with um, the, the second part of the, of the chapter, but just in conclusion, really. Um, so, broadly speaking, we're saying we shouldn't be concerned with policing the theology of other churches. We should be generous and humble uh, but we should be concerned with our own holiness, Jesus is saying. Just to be clear, Jesus, in the second part, is not saying that anyone should cut off a part of their body. Not really, okay? You don't actually have to cut off your hand or your arm or pluck out your eye. Uh, nor is he talking about a kind of fundamentalism that says, you know, there's some risk to this activity, like a kind of fundamentalism that says, you know, um, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't drink because there is a risk of... Uh, that taking me down the road. He's not talking about the kind of, you should run away from anything that might even slightly cause us to sin. God is more interested in your uh, self-control than he is in drawing really clear boundaries around things because that's one of the things that marks us out as sons rather than as slaves. But what Jesus is saying is he's, saying, he's drawing a contrast in terms of the limits of what we can judge about other people, what we can do about the behaviour of other people and what we can do about our own behaviour. I often can't clearly judge. Most of the time, I can't clearly judge what is going on in someone else enough to know whether I should say, I'm having nothing more to do with you. And so I should err on the side of caution and be generous to them. But I do know, more often than not, what's going on in my own heart. That's what the second part of the passage is about. It's really an application of, if before you take the splinter out of your brother's eye, take the giant log out of your own eye. When we pursue holiness in our own lives, in our own church, when we set our sights on love, we are more part of the church. <laughs> we are more able to recognise the church in other places. And so the most important thing we can do in making sure the body of Christ grows and is beautiful, the most important thing we can do is to look out for our own holiness.
So let me bring that to a personal application. If you find yourself concerned very much with the theology of other people, just listen to what God is saying and take a look at what is going on in your own heart. If you find that there is some sin in your life that is really, really obvious and you're not dealing with it, Jesus is saying, I want you to be in this beautiful city. I want you to be far away from everything that destroys and kills. Um, Just take that decision to run away from that thing. If you are flirting with danger in your moral life, Jesus is saying, get far, far away before it gets a hold of you and you have to cut your arm off to get away. When we fight that fight, we find ourselves seeing the church around us rightly and we have what Jesus says, salt in ourselves and peace with others. I remember hearing a, a testimony of an elderly Baptist minister. He was a famous guy. I can't remember his surname. His name was Robert something. And he was at a Sussex Gospel Partnership meeting. And he'd grown up as a strict Baptist. And as you know, it's, you know strict Baptists would be very narrow in their interpretation of you know, who's in the church and who's not. And he was quite famous within that movement. Um, but as he got older, he found himself mellowing somewhat. And he described this moving experience as he gave his talk. He sort of finished with this example. And he said, you know, last week I was in Cambridge and I went to this Church of England and there was liturgy and stained glass windows, all these things they wouldn't have <laughs> in the strict Baptist. There was music and we took the Eucharist together and I looked at the people around me and I thought, these are my brothers and sisters in Christ. God has done something in me, he said. <laughs> and um, I don't think that's just mellowing with old age. I think here's a guy who set his sights on holiness on really loving God. And God has drawn him to see the body of Christ truly. And I think that's what God calls us to. Division is of the enemy, but love is gravitational. It draws together all who walk in it in a brilliant constellation, a galaxy of constellations to God's glory. And when we pursue holiness, when we pursue love, we find ourselves quite naturally falling alongside those who serve the Lord Jesus. And we find a breadth of fellowship, and a beauty and a power that we wouldn't have otherwise have been able to imagine. Let's pray.